You're listening to Irish Radio Candidate Home and Abroad and I've had the joy of coming into the lobby of the Irish Labour History Museum and Archives which is on Haddington Road in Dublin and that is just when you get off on Mount Street you come out from Stephen's Green along Mount Street and it shares the area with the print museum so if you're trying to find it and you're having difficulty if you look up for the print museum you'll find it there but it is the Irish Labour uh, History Museum and Archives and it's with the Irish Labour History Society and Ed Penrose is here with me and we've just arrived into what is the lobby and straight into the lobby of the building it's surrounded by memorabilia of uh, a variety of things and Ed first of all thanks a million for putting up with me so far and, and agreeing to let me come in and um, well it's a bit of you having to put up with me as well we'll find out as the time goes on <laughs> so the member were surrounded by memory the first, the, the first thing that I want to say is when you come in here to the complex this was the first British Army barracks taken over by the Irish Free State in, on the 1st of February 1922 so it makes the whole complex very historical our building was the officers offices it's, as you come under the arch it's right opposite you it's a, a, a granite building owned by the government the OPW uh, and we have it on these peppercorn leaves in other words free right now it I did notice as I walked in that there's some beautiful buildings which obviously must have been the officers residence the, the buildings on each side as you come in they are now privately owned <coughs> they were the officers offices and in fact the second door on the left was where the free state or national army where they joined up uh, in 1922 uh, pro just prior to the, the civil war now you've just told me that once I come through the arch that this kind of government property and forget to tell me the houses are privately owned it sounds a little bit of a contradiction it's an Irishism is that what that is? allow for an Irishism okay. the Irish government sold the whole complex uh, about 30, 35 years ago okay. to a developer only okay. for 640,000 <coughs> but they retained the old two buildings in it where the uh, print museum is and where we are okay. and the other building was the original labour court was here as well they, they have moved out so it's a bit of both while the others are privately owned now and they only sell for half a million each there are four, four separate apartments in each of those okay in those doors okay so they're not houses they're, oh they are not houses okay they're, god the people in there wouldn't like you saying that that they are houses no well, they're I private mean, apartments yes that's that, well because you know they're beautiful buildings yes. i could see where um and you said a half a million i'm thinking wow that'd be a hell of a deal to get one of them houses for that price yeah for two bedrooms yeah yeah so then we come into the courtyard here and it's cobblestones and it has the feel of a barracks once you come through yes. the door outside front that was the officers parade ground behind our building 
which is now modern buildings on it that was the ordinary men's right. parade ground originally so the NCOs the non-commissioned and yes non-commissioned and and private, the, uh, and the private. privates yeah. yes right it wasn't, it was never a really active barracks, it was more a transit. It, it, it was built in 1837. Okay. And because we're so near the River Liffey and the sea, they would have the men here for a period of time before moving them on over to England and that. What kind of capacity had it then? How many would, that, would they have been capable of accommodating, do you think? About around six hundred. Wow, six hundred men. Yeah, and of course you're looking probably at dormitories. These people weren't getting two bedroom apartments. No, no, they weren't. <laughs> they certainly were not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so th that that's the outside before you get in here. Right. <clears throat> now we are an archive, a trade union. Yeah archive we are not so much a museum but in our what we used to call the portico uh, we have displays here of the some items that have survived the from 1916 but we would start from a labor point of view not from 1916 the rising but from 1913 what we call here the lockout. Mm -hmm. The lockout was occasioned <coughs> by a Jim Larkin who came over from England and formed a union for ordinary working men, dockers and that. Most of the others were guilds here, which would have been craftsmen. He set up the Irish Transport and General Workers Union. <coughs> His main adversary at the time was a William Martin Morphy who owned the independent newspapers and also the Dublin Tramway companies that's plural uh, they had a, he had a monopoly on them all he didn't want men who were members of the union uh, and he wouldn't allow them to wear any kind of an emblem so it was decided then to have a strike on Horse Show Week in 1913. <laughs> so at 12 o'clock, a whistle was blown. We didn't have to wait for the answers to, to ring. And the men on duty then just took the wheel off the trams and left the trams in the middle of the street. <laughs> now, Horse Show Week was one of the biggest social events in the country. <laughs> so there was an awful lot of visitors would be up. So they just left them and walked away. <laughs> William Martin Morphy, because he was a big employer, got a lot of other employers, there was up to 300 of them, <laughs> to cooperate with each other and said that they would not employ anyone who was a member of the trade union, <laughs> which led then to a general lockout. <laughs> now Ireland, and particularly Dublin, was one of the poorest cities in the world and was often compared with Calcutta the black hole of Calcutta <coughs> because of the poor the strike went on for four months during some of the marches the Dublin Metropolitan Police 
were not shy about using their batons mm-hmm. on the workers. <laughs> so the workers then set up one of the first militia called the Irish Citizen Army. Now, because we are only on radio and not, not with, with pictures, I shall have to try to describe some of what we see. Indeed. On the end wall, we have the Citizen Army, we have a Citizen Army uniform, an original from 1913. It is the only surviving one, definitely, that is on public view anywhere. We are not aware of if there are any others. Even the National Museum only have a replica of it. <coughs> we got it, we have it, that we got from the Transport Union 30 years ago, and it was lying in a box. But for 2013, we got work done on it. In it had to be done in Manchester in England because they are the experts on it and it actually cost us 13,000 to get just work done on it uh, so if you're here that is the, definitely the one thing to see over it we have photographs of the citizen army a famous one from 1914 outside the old Liberty Hall and it's the one if you know of the Liberty Hall of the pictures this one is the one that said we serve neither King nor Kaiser but Ireland <laughs> remember this was during the First World War right. there is a very good picture photograph an original photograph of that with two women over the banner upstairs looking out the upstairs window now quote that those two women I have seen originals with just one woman in it because they would have taken a number (coughs) we have a more modern day modern day it's about 30 years old painting of that scene but there's only one woman in it in the window (coughs) usually when I'm giving this talk especially if there are females on the tour I would point this out right begging the question which usually comes how come there's only one woman in it I usually take a step back while I explain that the other woman is going to make the tea for the man now you know why I take the I step now you know why I take so the I step can back can you tell me where was that physically located that building that was on the corner of Aston's Quay in Dublin, okay. right beside the Customs House, where there is just a couple of hundred yards down from O'Connell Street, the main street in Dublin, so is where there is a glass monstrosity okay, at so the moment. The, so the, the ICTWU building that's down there at the moment. No, ICTU is the the, the um, group of all the unions, Irish okay. Congress of Trade Unions, right. but it's the Irish Transport and General, General Workers Union. So where that big, the, the high rise is, yes, that's where that's this, where that this was. was. Before the union took it over, it was actually a hotel. It's in Beresford Place, right, the corner of the canal and that. Uh, over it we have drawings sketches of 
James Connolly. Uh, this, this sketch that we're looking at here is the one with him in the Citizen Army uniform. There is no photograph of him actually in a Citizen okay. Army uniform. These were done by a uh, man that lived in Dublin for years. He was born in England of Russian parentage, Harry Kernoff. <coughs> the one on the right, what we have here are originals. The one on, on the right, they are like lino prints. Yes. And in the background, you can see the Citizen Army men marching uh -huh. with a copy of the Liberty Hall in the background. The other one does not have Liberty Hall in the background, but only the starry plough and the men. Yes. Marching. The interesting thing about it is, <coughs> both are original. If I had them down, I could show you that the one without Liberty Hall was actually printed with Liberty Hall and it was hand painted over right. to obliterate right. Liberty Hall. <coughs> so I would quote that that is more original because Harry Kernoff didn't marry and his sister didn't marry and they lived in the same house so therefore that would have been hand painted over by either of them Correct. which right. to my mind makes it more original. Right, right, right. If we move on then, <coughs> there is... So we're coming around to his last case, or... We have glass cases, and I have to manoeuvre to get keys out, because these are locked, and I shall make sure to relock them, because I'm not sure about the interviewer so no, I just want yeah, to take yeah and I have sticky fingers oh yeah he's not a dumb <laughs> so that's that's the thing <coughs> there is a, a famous photograph of Parik Pierce surrendering in 1916 and on the bottom where he was wearing a grey coat you can see a white <laughs> at the bottom this was nurse Elizabeth O'Farrell who accompanied him at the surrender. Mm -hmm. Most photographs of this period, and this one is an original as you can see, mm -hmm. that is not the view of the white, it, it was a nurse's apron. Now, a lot of people now say that she was airbrushed out of history. Mm -hmm. Her own family she never married either, so these would be grand nephews and nieces. They say no, that she actually took a step backwards at one stage on purpose. So, I'm giving you the two variations and you can make up your own minds depending on how you... Indeed, because you can see her shoes there as well. You can see her shoes, You yes. can, yeah. And, but I would see if she took a step back, you'd still see the white. Well, it depends on how far she has steps Well, back. true, true, very true, <laughs> very true. Most of the other thing, because, again, about everything we have on exhibition here, people, I mean, even for 2013, for the anniversary, even trade unions were coming to us and asking, would we have memorabilia, etc. Not a lot survived, because in 1916, then, the British 
bombed uh, Liberty Hall, so not much survived. Right. What we have is a few little items that did survive with more modern day subjects to, to illustrate the mm -hmm. story. Mm -hmm. we, I have here a record for you old enough to remember, it's called, it's called it an EP. Let's see, know, that was a 45. 45. What's that called an EP? They were the It depends how many tracks. How how many tracks? Yeah, that would have been. A, uh, yeah, because if there's more than one on it, you call them EP. Yes. Well, otherwise, there were singles. Single. Oh yeah, the single, but the single was a big. No, no, that was three and the torch. That was they, no, but if there was only one song on it, it was a single. Right. When Dickie Rock came out with. Um, from the candy store, that was a single. Actually, I'm not old enough to remember <laughs> that. <laughs> what uh, about Sonny Knowles uh, when he was cleaning windows? Uh, <laughs> and what was he before that? A tailor. Yeah. A tailor. Anyway, let's. Let's go back to reality. <laughs> these, uh, you know, I have to allow as a dub to try and educate these country people, but that's, that's another thing. Yes. But this EP, this EP, our small record, uh, produced by Clatter Records, and it's called Rebel Irish Women. It's actually an interview with three women. Helena Maloney, who's trade union. Kathleen Bean, the mother of Brendan mm -hmm. Bean, who, by the way, Father Stephen was the president of the Painters' Union. Okay. Uh, and Maud Don McBride. Right. Uh, that was bar auction a, a number of years ago. And it's just interviews with them uh, about their time during 1916. Right. Um, the other things on view here is some of the only original. I'm sorry, I'm putting it back in the stuff. Is cards from original Irish Citizen Army Pipe Band, a draw in aid of the above. This is the first prize, Labour in Irish History and the Reconstruction of Ireland. That was a, a book produced and written by James Connolly. Mm -hmm. The Story of a Success by P.H. Hearst. The writings of James Vinton Lawler and Duties of Man. Uh, Stevens's Knife. Well, Stevens's Knife, what I find is interesting looking at that is that there was an Irish Citizens Army dramatic company. Yes. Um, that in itself is interesting. And the other interesting point that, that that leads to as well is that the Irish Citizen Army actually had females. Right females in it. Um, and they weren't just for making tea? They weren't just for making tea. One of the main ones, uh, Countess Markovic, she was very active and in fact she was the one in command of the Citizen Army in 1916 in the College of Surgeons. Um, the other one Conley Mallon Social and Athletic Club, right. a monster air yacht in aid of the Irish Citizen Army Piper's Band. 
and that was uh, Shelbourne Park Rings End Sunday July the 25th 1920 the other thing that we have on display is the minutes the minute book of the Irish Citizen Army Officially, when would it be considered the Irish Citizen Army was formed? 1914. Right. Sorry, sorry, I should say 1913 for the lockout. Right. And then 1914 it became with the uniforms. They hadn't got the uniforms originally. Right. But we have the minute book of the meetings of the Council of the Irish Citizen Army at Liberty Hall, Dublin, from the 3rd of February 1919 to the 15th of September 1920. Recently, we have worked with Dublin City Council and have had that digitised. Okay. And it will be going on, on the, the internet Brilliant. Uh, uh, with the mistakes and spellings and that. Um, it was 1919, so it was after 16, and they were kind of winding down a bit, but it, it gives you a lot. Um, some of the other, the other books, minute books, Irish Trade Union Congress and Labour History, minute books, February 1970 to 21. Uh, the, uh, the other minute book over here, these are just some that we... Uh, we don't usually have these out on display because of the fragility oh, of them uh, because of cultural uh, week three weeks ago we, we have them now this other one is the Dublin Bakers Union Minute Book from March 1888 to October 1894 so we have quite also um, just a little bit older than myself <laughs> Going back to to the war times, um, in in this section, in this section, uh, we have this is James McGowan. He was a captain in the Citizen Army who was involved in 1916 and what is here is a sachet satchel which was what he kept all the stuff in when he was captured in 1916 and on the top you will see Dublin May the 9th 1916 then he was in Stafford jail which was in England to July the 1st then Wormwood Scrubs and finally Van Gogh. Van Gogh was like a concentration camp in Wales and this was one of the two mistakes that the British made in 1916. First was executing the leaders. Mm-hmm. The second was putting all these in an open prison concentration camp. So men got to know each other up to then like you wouldn't know volunteers that were involved that were on the opposite side of the city to you right but suddenly they were in like an open university so now you got to know other comrades right and even people in the country so there was you got to know each 
other people uh, which was able to walk later on <laughs> two of the things here that we have was a prison number B3 stroke 2 B3 stroke 12 looking at them now remember these are from 1916 they have like a fluorescent colour mustard mm -hmm. which was reminiscent in a way to the Jews in the in the concentration camp so that they could be spotted the other we have one of the other common things uh, was while they were in prison that they used to do drawings so they each had their own would do just to keep them occupied mm -hmm. Seamus McGowan uh, in John O'Casey's play The Shadow of a Gunman there's a young volunteer who goes out one day catching butterflies in quotes the model of this character was Seamus McGowan now John O'Casey was the original secretary of the Irish Citizen Army right. so he knew what he was right. talking about right. Right. we go down to this month we have a head sculptor of Connolly. Mm -hmm. The really interesting thing, and this was here for quite a while before, I won't say I know, it was brought to my attention, but if you try to make out. Um, I can see, uh, I can see in, in the, the name. What name? I can see in front of Connolly. Oh, in front of Connolly? Just no, I mean there, just yeah. in front of the word Connolly. Some people think it's I N A, mm -hmm. and they're trying to work out is the Irish national name, is the Irish thing. It's actually Ina. Ina was one of James Connolly's daughters. Right. So this book oh. was actually done by one of his daughters. Oh which makes it that bit more unique as Indeed. well. Indeed. In this, Liberty Hall was rebuilt in the 1960s. 63 reopened. When they were rebuilding, some of the items that you will see in this glass case, the shells, when they shelled it, these were down in, in, in the under the flooring that were found when they were doing it and you will see the shrapnel mm. which was what mm -hmm. caused more also here very poignantly you will see five star that was the name the five star cigarettes found in the window frame of the Irish citizen guard room in Liberty Hall so some man left his five cigarettes behind them we also have 367 type of the type um, which could have I'm not claiming definitely but could have been part of those used in the, the printing of the proclamation mm -hmm. mm -hmm. you will see a photograph here of the Liberty Hall in bits mm -hmm. and even a man on the roof trying to, to correct it 
Uh, the five star cigarettes. Um, I see there were uh, that was Wills. Wills. Yeah. Yes. I remember times when they'd have signs up around Dublin Wills cigarettes. Wills. Yes. Uh, the the cotton makers that they use <laughs> cotton bales at Wills. Them and the woodbines. Them and the woodbines. Um, just while we were talking, a, a person came in, actually Shay Cody, who is the president okay. of Irish Labour History Society, and he just took out, one of the Labour leaders was a Tom Johnson, who was leader of the Labour Party, very influentially kept out of the War of Independence part, and he helped to get people back together afterwards. Uh, Shay had just done a book for us on, on him. And one of the other things we have is a bell which presented to Tom Johnson, chairman of the ITU Congress in Sligo in 1916. Shay is giving a talk on Sunday. Uh, on Tom Johnson and that's how uh, he was just taking it out here we have some original postcards from the period of the citizen army and Countess Markovich being arrested and some stuff left behind them also on the freedom of the city of Dublin in this, Michael Mallon, who was one of them executed, we have a photograph. His son became a priest based afterwards in China, uh, and he lived to the age of 104. Unfortunately, he died two to three weeks before the 20th anniversary of 1916. So we have photographs of that. We also there's the Sinn Féin Rebellion Handbook, which was on Easter 1916, produced in 1917 by the Irish Times. It lists everyone who was arrested in 1916. In a lot of the situations it gave their age and previous employment where they were sent to in England, what prison, when they were released, etc. It's, it's a mine of information. <coughs> a couple of years ago, there was two men over from England that turned out <coughs> who were trying to trace their family history said that a grand uncle had died in 1916 here in Beggar's Bush Barracks. <coughs> and they went around to the print museum who sent them around to us. There was somebody else giving them the tour and they had to mention the story and mention that person's surname which wasn't Kelly or Bourne, it was that bit unusual. And while they were doing it, I slipped upstairs and I had a digital copy of this and I was able to look it up. And their family history had said that they had been shot in here. Now, I had been wondering about it because it was the fortification, as you can see, was in Penrith. Mm -hmm. And when I went upstairs, it was right. 
he had actually been shot by a sniper in 1916 who had overlooked the barracks from the railway line so I came down and I said by the way I said you you mentioned about your grand uncle and he said yes he said we're trying to check on the story in there and I know they had only mentioned the story name and I mentioned his first name and they were amazed and I was able to print off a copy from that that's what makes this I call it a job that's what makes this situation people coming in and to be able to surprise them with with things like that here we have a number of the items I said about the, the, the bell these these were presented this is to Lou Bennett when she was president of the Irish Trade Union Congress right and this annual conference, Irish Labour and Trade Union Conference, presented to Tom Farron, who was president of and this by the district Cork District Trade Labour Council. Now why I made the sound here was when school kids come in it's not as good for them just to see things behind glass things but to do something like that and allow them to do it allow them to ring it 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 changes because that's what we're about trying to enthuse people on history that is now here again we have an original during the lockout some of the British unions sent over food parcels and this is British Trade Union uh, British Trade Union fund give bear a parcel of bread etc apply south wall from 12 noon p.m. on Saturday the 7th of September 1913 (laughs) again you will see those if you Google. Yeah. You will see the thing. That is an original. Right. Again, 2013, and it's happened a number of times, people will hang up and say, I have my grand-uncle or whatever died, and we're clean now, and we have this, would you? And you before they finish the sentence, I said, yes. Yeah. I'll be over to collect it. Yeah the saver and it, it was split in two this again is what makes history this one is a summons to Thomas Mannion this is from police constable Thomas Mannion 25B for the year the 26th day of August 1913 that this man left this was the ones that I was saying just took the wheel and left alright yeah them in the middle that was his summons that was his summons that was his summons the other item I'll let you describe what that is 
Well, I saw one in the last week because I went to Sebastian Barry's, the Stuart of Christendom, right. at the Gate Theatre. <coughs> right. And finally, the whole part of some of the, the story was based on some of the, uh, one of the characters uh, was, um, had suffered as a result of the lockout. And at one point in the, the play, he arrives in with a truncheon. This is a, and it's wood. Yeah. And it's about two foot long. Yeah. I don't know what kind of wood, but it's very hard wood. It's a hard wood. And it would do some damage to you. Yeah, and it's, it's not it quite as big as a baseball bat. But... It's as lethal. It's as lethal. Uh, and we will not say where that might, how that might have been acquired, but it is, it is in, now in safer hands than it was then, let's put it that, <laughs> let's put it that way. Indeed, indeed. No, as I, say, I found it fascinating uh, being at um, the Gate Theatre, and I learned from that as well, and some of what we were talking about was, um, it, it was so relevant. Yes. Here we have a union banner, it was Workers' Union of Ireland. There was the Transport Union founded by Larkin. <coughs> Larkin went off to America in 1914 because the lockout failed. Right. And he went off. He ended up then in Sing Sing prison for five years for what they call the Red Scare. He came back and tried to take back the Transport Union, but it was gone into other hands, let's say, um, and I won't get into the controversy of mm -hmm. um, which side, because people are then Connolly or Larkin, and there was big court cases, etc. The one that I have is from the Dunleary branch, the Workers' Union of Ireland branch, and the, the painting of them actually is in prison uniform when he was in Sing Sing. Right. Um, over here we have Irish Transport and General Workers Union band, and this has thing of Connolly in it. Established in Dublin 1919, this was their band. What else have we got? Well, uh, you, have, you have uniforms, first of all, that are very colourful and rich. Yes. And um, the, the, um, there's the Workers' Union Band here. No, this is... Yeah, the Communication Workers. The Communication Workers. Oh, yeah, okay. CWU, yeah. Postman, etc. Or, okay. That was the Postman, who were later known as the Suffering Ducks. Why were they known as the Suffering Ducks? Well... And I know I was supposed to ask that. You, you, you can transpose the word Ducks, which okay. we will not do. Okay. And they were dead later, in their very last days, they are no longer in existence, were known as the Non-Marching Marching Band. Okay. They were static, they were okay. stationary, um, mostly because of age, etc. Right, right. Now, at my age, I'm not one to, supposed to mention things like that. And then we have a kilt. And then it's, this is, 
the Irish Citizen Army Band Uniform which is also original from 1913 it is based on uh, you can see even the badge of the ICA yeah. Irish Citizen Army that along with the Citizen Army uniform had to be redone in Manchester in England um, and just a short story on that <coughs> I flew over with the two two of them in the case <coughs> to Manchester <coughs> um, to get a price quote for them and flew back the following day with them uh, to get it approved now it took us over 12 months to get 7,000 back out of the 15,000 <laughs> but while it was being done in England then I got a call from them uh, to, to tell me that this was for 1916 and I wanted them back for the anniversary <coughs> uh, to get uh, an email from them to say we will be back on the 17th of March with the uniform so I had to send an uh, email back to them God bless your Englishness but <laughs> the 17th of March the St. Patrick's Day to get from the docks to where we are in Balls Bridge <laughs> um, would not be possible so they rearranged it for the previous day Right, uh, and then I had to say say to them, well, you have to deal with someone else because I was over in New York marching Patrick's Day Parade on behalf of Labour Society. So, Ed, when these were being manufactured in their original, I assume they would have been manufactured in Dublin. Yes, certainly the Citizen Army uniform was done actually by. Arnott's, there was 50 of them ordered and bought, right. ordered by Countess Markovic. Right. Now, a lot of other Citizen Army uniforms, these, these, this one and the band one, were actually done by Arnott's. Because we have heard about other ones are in pictures that are different now what happened remember Irish Transport General Workers people were ordinary workers they weren't very low pay a lot of their wives would have worked in the rag trade yeah. whatever so they made up their own Okay. this one is actually uh, and our journal, really journal, Seher, which means work, uh, for 2016 we got a, a special edition of it, which by the way is still on sale on our website, okay. Irish Labour History Society, and there's an article in that on the uniform. Right. Um, and actually, if you want to buy that online, I'll even sign the article that I wrote on the uniform. <laughs> As you can see, I'm the treasurer. I'm always trying to get money yeah, in, in, in for, the, for the society. So that would mean then that, that, would, that I guess some of the uniforms would be limited to what materials 
that the waves would have been able to get exactly yes for those yeah and I mean even even the original ones would have been a bit limited because 19 1914 you're going into the war yeah. to assume yeah, yeah. that that stuff was and leather familiar. leather for the the belt and all that kind of stuff would have been uh, scarce as well it would have been they it would, would have been, been limited scarce. yes yes yeah yeah um, so it, it, in, in the normal course of the the year um, what kind of traffic do you see coming in here a lot of, because we have the open windows now Actually, a lot of people, uh, they get more publicity to print news in. Yes. So people on the way, then notice and they come in here. Right, right. And again, culture night is coming up and we are working in tangent with the print news in. That they're overflow. While they're too busy, we are hoping that they will come here and we can hear. Fantastic. We have the contact because I'm an ex-printer as well. So right. we actually work together. Right. on that and um, we also have replica our municipal employees trade union commonly called the Muno <laughs> municipal workers which is now part of Forza okay um, now when, when we look at all this the trade union movement since that time has been quite strong in Ireland. So when it was actually established, um, despite the initial resistance uh, to it, the trade union movement in Ireland managed to put down good roots. Yes, yes. Um, the the craft unions. There was a lot of little. Animosities between them. Yeah. Uh, but most of the, unfortunately, a lot of the smaller craft unions are no longer in existence in their own right. Right. They now become part of other unions. But is that not a little bit as well that a lot of those crafts have gone the way of the dodo? And by that I mean, like I remember back in it would have been late seventies, around the nineteen eighties, and there was a march down Capel Street from the foot trade the shoe, the, um, because um, that trade was in trouble with imports coming in on cheap shoes yes uh, and uh, I mean around that time would have been the bigger one would have been the car yeah. assembly yes and which also is where they came in suddenly then they start coming in in crates yeah and then the rag trade as well the rag trade as well yes yeah because I remember the rag trade used to be quite strong up around South Circular Road area Yes, the, around the South Circle Road, that would be called part of that area was Little Jerusalem, yep. Jewish. Yes. Jews are, are very strong uh, around that area. Yes. Yes, that would have been. And in fact, the Taylor's Union, which was in Camden Street, right beside where the new Wetherspoon thing is, and there's a plaque up there to a Wally Walter Carpenter. Right. Uh, he was the general secretary of the thing, who was actually in 1916. He and his brother Peter Carpenter were involved in 1916. He he then became the the general secretary of the Taylor's Union, properly known as the Jewish. Right, Union. right, right. 
and it, that's another museum in Dublin that's well worth visiting Walworth Road okay. at the Jewish Museum we're going to have to wrap up purely because time um, there's a limit on the amount of time that we can share um, and it has been fantastic and you know I find when I come on any tour like this I learn so much and there's a wealth that most of us are totally unaware of yes. they're treasures <coughs> yes yes and if someone is looking for uh, more information your normal opening hours are when a normal opening hours a Monday to Friday from 10 to 4.30 and now having said that and just to forewarn people if they, I only arrive at half eleven to half four five o'clock Monday right. to Thursday right. so if you want to avoid meeting me you come before <laughs> before eleven thirty and well I get the days. feeling that we all schedule during the time that you're available and that's your <laughs> and there is a website there is a website Irish Labour History Society now if you go into that at the moment also remember to go into it in a month's time because right. we are working on a new website right as you say an update on all modern websites and right. um, and you will get our email and addresses on that info at irishlabourhistorysociety.com so if there was a group and they wanted to do what you and I are just doing which is get a bit of a tour do you facilitate that? oh yes yeah, yeah. Just give a call in advance and arrange. We're, if there's a group, yes. Otherwise, it's a walk in. It's a walk in, and indeed. You, you, you take your chances. That you're here or you're not. Here, uh, who's here or not. <laughs> and, and the. Um, for 95% of people who ring our bell here are looking for the print museum. Well, and I'll but we inveigle them in here on yeah, their way back. Yeah, the signage isn't the best outside, yeah. I have to tell you that. Yeah. But Ed, it's been a real honour and a real pleasure. Um, chatting with you and learning and uh, I do encourage anyone it's on Haddington Road so it's actually very close to St Stephen's Green uh, if you're in the downtown area on the south side I walked out from, I was over off near Grafton Street and it only took me a little over 20 minutes to walk out so you know, put the, the walking shoes on you don't need to take a bus, come on out and the barracks is stunning uh, the whole barracks is stunning and Ed is a treasure and a pleasure to spend time with Hold. the other place that is near is, is the Aviva Stadium for, yes. for sporting people indeed, for it, thanks a million no problem